Those who love wisdom must investigate many things. Heraclitus. Chapter 5. The Spiritual Philosophers This chapter is so titled for reasons similar to those given in the chapter The Scientific Fraternity. That is, it is not intended here to summarize the works of all the many philosophers who have existed and their particular and various genre of thought, but instead to concentrate on certain specific individuals. This chapter will discuss Goethe in the context of Faust, Dante in the context of the Divine Comedy, Nietzsche in the context of Ecce Homo, Jung in the context of Mysterium Conjunctionis, and Plato's Seventh Epistle. As discussed in the previous chapter, it is my assertion that, associated with light, as is mentioned in a wide variety of traditional and esoteric texts, is a specific and tangible experience. I intend to provide further evidence for this spiritual experience and its specific association with light. It is my contention that the men of profound contemplation, the philosophers discussed in this chapter, had such an experience, the very same as alluded to in spiritual texts, and that they were illumined by this instance. This moment of enlightenment, in its most literal of meanings, had a dramatic impact upon them and was a great influence on their subsequent lives, work and outlook. Faust by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was inspired by the original work, Historia von Johann D. Fausten, an anonymous work circulated in Germany in 1587. Goethe read the 1725 Faust chapbook, and it preoccupied him for much of his life. Goethe's Faust, his magnum opus, is written in two parts and was initiated in his twenties. The first part was concluded in his fifties, whilst part two was not completed until Goethe was in his early eighties. In the story of Goethe's play, the Lord makes a wager with Mephistopheles in relation to Faust, who, as a devout servant of God, hankers after heaven's loftiest orbs, that is, wisdom and knowledge, to the point of madness half-suspected on Faust's part. God intends to reward Faust for his assiduous and consistent endeavor. However, Mephistopheles suggests that he can lead Faust from his true source by guiding him in paths that I, Mephistopheles, choose for him. God gives his permission, confident that though a man must strive, and striving he must err, and that a good man in his dark, bewildered course will not forget the way of righteousness. Despite Faust having gained much knowledge, he is full of malcontent and a deep sense of incompletedness and turns to the abyss of necromancy. Necromancy here means divination. Mephistopheles interacts with Faust and so begins his embarking on a spiritual journey fraught with vision. As it states, now we wend our way into witchery and dreams, and as Mephistopheles says, here we are at the uttermost bounds of understanding, that is to say where the wit of man breaks down. It is in part two that we see the bulk of Faust's spiritual experiences, and in this context his change and growth. He wakes in a pleasing landscape, the mystery closer seeing, in mirrored hues we have our life and being. Faust eventually dies and Mephistopheles stands over the body awaiting his prize, Faust's soul. 
However, a host of angels from heaven descend and rise again, bearing away with them the immortal part of Faust, and leaving Mephistopheles looking around himself indignant, wondering to whom he should complain for the stealing of the soul-pledged mine. It is near to the end that Faust, having wandered through the underworld, interacting with a variety of spiritual entities, now walks with wisdom's deeper heed. And here we find several instances and use of light. For instance, there is Faust's speech near the end of part two, where it states, What then? Clear light within my mind shines still. Only the master's word gives action weight. And later, when the host of angels appear with venomous light, in the passage of Chorus we find, Turn, flames of love once more, pure light reveal. Those who their lives deplore, truth yet shall heal. It does not seem to me that Goethe's Faust can be appreciated fully from a purely academic standpoint. It is an allegory of the combination of academic study and learnedness into matters deeply spiritual and esoteric, and, combined with meditation, a spiritual journey can be undertaken, with its resulting spiritual experience associated with light, contentedness, and even reward. This will be discussed more fully in Chapter 6, but can be seen in the following explorations of the writings of Nietzsche and Jung, who actually lived through similar experiences themselves, as opposed to this fictional portrayal. However, it should be at least worthy of consideration whether the passion and detail within the writing of Faust does not suggest that Goethe may have also gone through such an experience himself. Goethe, like the character Faust and other individuals discussed in this chapter, was a varied and well-studied man. Among his studies was that of alchemy, which provided the foundation from which Faust originated. It was Goethe's conviction that people who followed him would reap knowledge beyond their imagination. Few people realized that Goethe also produced a sizable body of scientific work that focused on such diverse topics as plants, color, clouds, weather, and geology. In particular, his intense fascination with light went to such a degree that he was skeptical of Newton's work on the matter and competed bitterly with Newton for decades on the definition of light. His writings on this research can be found in his book, The Theory of Color, published in 1810. It is fascinating to note that Goethe's last words in life were not an appeal to God for eternal rest, but more light. Christopher Marlowe's verse play of the Faust story is far less involved and shorter in length than Goethe's version. Marlowe's account is simplistic and less spiritual in its narration of Faust, who here appears as a scholar and a black magician, and who promises his soul to the devil and his agent Mephistopheles for wisdom and experience. In Marlowe's narrative, as opposed to that of Goethe's, Faust's learning is trivialized, and one can see Faust as a fool, significantly different from the spiritual journey in Goethe's play. I have also read the original 1592 edition of the History of the Damnable Life and Deserved Death of Dr. John Faustus, and you can clearly see from where Marlowe's story originates. The original is marginally more complex than Marlowe's rendition, but it is also essentially a moral and Christian tale of good and evil paths and the penalty for taking the path of evil. In fact, in this original work, the account of Faust's end could have been taken from a modern-day horror film. It states, They found no Faustus, but all the hall lay besprinkled with blood, his brains cleaving to the wall, for the devil had beaten him from one wall against another. 
In one corner lay his eyes, in another his teeth, a pitiful and fearful sight to behold. While the original may be a very good narrative, it lacks the volume, complexity, passion and spirituality of Goethe's rendition. It is clear that Goethe retold the Faust story in his own very personal way. There are several tales that possess an enduring quality by cutting so close to the heart and mind of man as to necessitate their recounting by a variety of media over centuries by many writers and artists alike. As with Faust, Dante's The Divine Comedy is another such tale. There are further parallels to be drawn from Dante's Divine Comedy. Whilst Dante is thought of as a poet, he was certainly a great student of theology and philosophy, visiting the great schools of philosophy at the Sorbonne. Philosophy, Dante argued, was literally love of wisdom, and he immersed himself in the study of books to the point where he nearly destroyed his eyesight. Dante is quoted as saying, the love of philosophy banished and destroyed every other thought. Philosophy was extremely important to Dante in all its forms. In the Convivio, a work which preceded the Divine Comedy, Dante begins with a quote from Aristotle, which says, All human beings by nature desire to know. The Divine Comedy is an intellectual synthesis which suggests that all things in the universe can be fully understood and explained. This work was probably started in 1307 and concluded only a few months before Dante's death in 1321. The narrative is largely of a spiritual struggle and a quest for truth, though interspersed with the politics of the day that affected him. The poem is divided into three volumes, Inferno or Hell, Purgatorio, Purgatory, and Paradiso, Paradise or Heaven. Beneath this work lies much historical reference and constantly refers to the Old and New Testaments as well as the ancient Greek narratives. The similarities to Goethe's Faust are to be found in the traversing of these otherworldly realms and the meeting of a variety of spirits. However, it is not until Purgatorio that we start to see the full extent and numerous instances of light, this imagery evoking the phenomena of change, process and regeneration until the return to earthly existence in Paradiso. In Canto II, it opens with a sudden display of supernatural illumination, it states, A light came so swift across the sea, and nothing else in flight could equal it, and having briefly drawn my eyes away, to ask my leader what this light could be, I saw it now grown greater and more bright, and then, around it, all appeared to me, a something of I did not know pure white, and bit by bit, another under that. Virgil, Dante's guide, then declares that Dante, henceforth, must accustom himself to such moments of revelation. Virgil explains that Dante, having arrived at the steps that lead to the gate of purgatory, was lifted there not by an eagle but by a Christian saint, St. Lucia, whose name, of course, means light, and the heat that he experienced in his dream was in fact the light of revelation. The second half of Canto IX moves inward to a region of ecstatic vision in which, beyond any scientific or rational explanation, the mind is enraptured and informed by powers beyond itself. The conclusion of Purgatorio is the nearing of the end of Dante's spiritual journey and his entry into earthly paradise and a new level of thought. 
he declares that his purpose must be to write for the benefit of mankind, and, having received the visions, return to the world and, for its benefit, reveal the perspectives of divine truth. He associates himself with seers and prophets of the Old and New Testaments, particularly with Ezekiel and St. John of the Apocalypse. In Paradiso, perhaps the most deeply personal of all three volumes, we hear him describe his spiritual journey and experience. It states, High in that sphere which takes from him most light, I was, I was, and saw things there that no one who descends knows how or ever can repeat. The Divine Comedy is not a work of fantasy, and Dante himself describes it as a sacred work, making him over many years grow gaunt. He also modestly suggests that this work is a little flame that might ignite a great bonfire. In Paradiso, Dante is guided through the nine celestial spheres of heaven, and in the entirety of this cantica there are numerous references to light. One can hardly turn a page without viewing numerous examples. As a result of his experience, Dante states that he now saw better than he had before. His guide, later in Paradiso, describes the light as the power that overcomes sight, and as one from which no shelter can be sought. Here, all is wisdom, and the strength that cleared the open road that runs from heaven to earth, which was for so long Dante's desire. This destination is described in Paradiso as where our human nature is at one with God, and where what we hold in faith, not argued through, but known for what it is, as the primal truth that all believe. It is my belief that the Divine Comedy is a book of revelation which resists the imposition of any final answer and even questions the desirability of any final answer. The last canto in Paradiso repeatedly emphasizes the inadequacy of Dante's words in recording any ultimate experience of divinity. The last canto in Paradiso, Dante repeatedly emphasizes the inadequacy of his words in recording any ultimate experience of divinity. In my view, as I will elaborate in the next chapter, this experience is a particularly difficult one to articulate, define and elucidate. Nietzsche was certainly one of the greatest philosophers within the spiritual realm who drove himself to extremes in matters of great profundity and I believe encountered the very same experience as that of Dante. It has been suggested that Nietzsche is perhaps not the best of examples to use mainly due to his insanity. However, insanity highlights a potential aspect of the experience in that, whilst it is a beatific experience and of light, if the individual does not manage it well, it can lead to delusions of grandeur and perhaps even insanity. Nietzsche was born in 1844 and he wrote a number of books including The Birth of Tragedy, Human All Too Human, Thus Spoke Zarathustra and Twilight of the Idols. His final work, Ecce Homo, is perhaps the most spiritually all-encompassing of his works. He felt that, at this point, he had reached some conclusion which justified a retrospective. Indeed, in Ecce Homo, he provides commentary on all his prior publications, himself, his spiritual journey and experience. Whilst in this text he refers to and asserts many of the points that I myself maintain, the style of writing is rather unfortunate in that it is particularly arrogant and egotistical in delivery and articulation. If one cannot bypass or overlook this, it can detract from the otherwise solid insights into his spiritual journey and resultant experience.
In Thus Spoke Zarathustra, there are numerous references to light and to knowledge, which appear in a variety of his texts, but especially in this one. It states, Where is the lightning to lick you with its tongue? Where is the madness with which you should be cleansed? And further, Behold, I teach you this superman. He is this lightning. Nietzsche here compares himself to Zarathustra and describes himself as a prophet of the lightning and a heavy drop from the cloud. But this lightning is called Superman and he desires to teach men the meaning of their existence, which is the Superman, the lightning from the dark cloud. On the matter of knowledge and his independent drive for it, Nietzsche feels that truly it is more when one's own teaching comes out of one's own burning, and says of himself in Echo Homo, As if in me a second consciousness had grown, as if in me the will had turned on a light for itself, over the oblique path on which it had hitherto been descending. It is in Echo Homo that I believe the best evidence for Nietzsche having had his experience can be found. The commentaries of others who have had the experience in the following chapter will show how Nietzsche writes with similar striking imagery of the concept of revelation, an ecstasy, a superfluity of light, and a tempest of a feeling of freedom, of divinity. He states, The great seriousness first arises. The real question mark is the first step up. The destiny of the soul veers round. The clock hand moves on. The tragedy begins. One is merely incarnation, merely mouthpiece, merely medium of overwhelming forces. The concept of revelation, in the sense that something suddenly with unspeakable certainty and subtlety becomes visible, audible, something that shakes and overturns one to the depths, simply describes the fact. A thought flashes up like lightning. I never had any choice. An ecstasy whose tremendous tension sometimes discharges itself in a flood of tears, while one's steps now involuntarily rush along, now involuntarily lag. A complete being outside of oneself, with the distinct consciousness of a multitude of subtle shudders and trickles down to one's toes. A superfluity of light. Everything is in the highest degree involuntary, but takes place as in a tempest of a feeling of freedom, of absoluteness, of power, of divinity. The confidence in knowing due to this experience can be found in his commentary in Echo Homo. Nietzsche refers to his search for truth and knowledge and having attained insight, finding himself eventually no longer speaking with words, but with lightning bolts, as a result of the courage of his conviction. In fact, Nietzsche feels that he is one of the very few who has had such an experience, and of this he states, This reflects my own experience of inspiration. I do not doubt that one has to go back thousands of years to find anyone who could say to me, It is mine also. Nietzsche's imperiousness is unfortunate and generally detracts from his work. However, he feels that, having been one of the few to have had such an experience, he only has Zarathustra to relate to in this context. This is perhaps just and forgivable to the extent that he would have had no one to discuss such matters with, nor would it have been written of in any text that he would readily have had access to. Certainly none of the philosophers of his day had openly achieved what he had. As was the case with Jung, and even more so today, there is easy access to a vast amount of information on a diverse range of subjects. Had he lived in a later age, Nietzsche would have known that he was not alone.
Carl Gustav Jung traveled widely in Africa, North America, and the Orient, and was an erudite man of great introspection. He perhaps represents best what can be described as that combination of academic study, meditation, and resultant experience that leads to oneness or Atman. He was a student of a variety of subjects, including the work of Poe, Byron, Shakespeare, and Nietzsche, and also of Sanskrit, Hindu and Egyptian myths, Greek and Norse legends, the Bible, the Church Fathers, Gnosticism, and Aztec mythology. At university and subsequently, Jung became, to an extent, obsessed with Nietzsche and conducted a detailed analysis of him in the late 1920s to early 1930s. As Frank McLean writes in his biography of Carl Gustav Jung, the reading of Thus Spoke Zarathustra was as much a revelation to Jung as Faust had been. McLean goes on to comment how Jung was alarmed by the model of Nietzsche's insanity and how he strove to avoid a similar breakdown in himself. He states, Jung was perfectly well aware how closely his experience resembled that of the great German who died in an insane asylum. It was this faith that he feared above all, having survived madness by the skin of his teeth. He was often to say that the experience gave him a unique insight into the forces that carried off Nietzsche. For at least four years, he lived in a state of constant tension and near breakdown, and he often reflected with justifiable pride that it was only his immense toughness that pulled him through. As one mental storm succeeded another, he frequently had to force himself to do yoga exercises to keep his emotions in check. Indeed, the experience is not an easy one and is often bewildering. And in an explanation of this potential madness, McLean writes, Nietzsche had been overwhelmed by madness because he did not retain a strong enough impression of the difference between the external world and his own fantasies. McLean continues that Jung took great comfort from his family. He repeated over and over to himself, I have a medical diploma from a Swiss university, I have a wife, I have five children, I live at 228 Seestrasse, Kushnat. In other words, in context of his experience, Jung, unlike Nietzsche, was able to remain grounded. It is my assertion here that Jung's experience was fully articulated in his book Mysterium Conjunctionis. The initial point of process or embarkation is cited by Frank McLean when he states that Jung noted the exact date when he let himself go. It was the 12th of December 1913. And this pertains to his spiritual journey and the period of deep introspection and all the mysteries of the experience. The experience itself is consistently described by Jung as numinous, meaning the indication of the presence of a divinity, spiritual or awe-inspiring, and states that this would be recognized only by someone who had known it themselves. Jung declares that anyone who has experienced anything of the sort will know what I mean, and anyone who has not had the experience will not be satisfied by any amount of descriptions. Moreover, there are countless descriptions of it in world literature, but I know of no case in which the bare description conveyed the experience. In Jung's view, any attempt to gain an adequate understanding of the numinous experience must be made of parallel religious or metaphysical ideas, which have not only been associated with it from ancient times, but are constantly used to formulate and elucidate it, a point which I have tried to make in this book.
Young goes on further to say that investigations of such experiences convinced him that previously unconscious contents then break through into consciousness and overwhelm it, and that even Jesus appeared to his followers in that light. Young states that these images and ideas were not thought up or invented by the inspired person, but happened to them as experiences, and he became, as it were, their willing or unwilling victim. A will transcending his consciousness seized hold of him, which he was quite unable to resist. Naturally enough, he feels this overwhelming power as divine. Young firmly asserted that profound introspection and confrontation of the self was an essential device which leads to this numinous or awe-inspiring experience. The reference to Plato's experience can be found in the Thirteen Epistles of Plato and in the Seventh in particular. The Seventh Letter was a turning point in Plato's life. He was disillusioned with politics after the execution of his mentor Socrates and devoted himself thereafter to philosophy. Plato was a well-travelled and a learned man travelling to Egypt to study the discoveries of Pythagoras who preceded him. In an introduction to the collection of letters by L.A. Post, Post asserts that the work can be compared with the letters of St. Paul. Post states that in this work of Plato's we find the confident tone of a seer, the fervid outpouring of an enthusiast who has seen a vision, a vision that compels him to devote his life to propagating a divine truth amongst all mankind. The seventh letter is the longest in the collection and the most valuable of the Platonic letters. While there is debate over how genuine the letters are, even critics who dismiss some of the other letters accept the seventh as authentic. Plato alludes to the experience, referring to and treating the subject rather mysteriously and circumspectly. He does, however, employ the rather specific aspect of light in his mention of it. Its attainment, Plato asserts, is for one who is genuinely devoted to philosophy, is a man of God, and sees in the course marked out a path of enchantment which he must strain every nerve to follow, or die in the attempt. Provided that individual does not relax their efforts, they are crowned with their final accomplishment. Plato suggests that when this conviction has taken possession of the individual, they should continue in whatever occupation that they engage, but never cease to practice philosophy and such habits that make them the most effective in ensuring them an intelligent and retentive student. Plato continues that acquaintance of it must come after a long period of attendance on the subject, and then, suddenly, like a blaze kindled by a leaping spark, it is generated in the soul and at once becomes self-sustaining. Plato states that he has composed no work in regard to it, and nor will he ever do so, for there is no way of putting it into words like other studies. He suggests that writing on such a subject is best avoided by others, and were such a treatise to be produced, he would do it best. However, he does go on to state, if I thought it possible to deal adequately with the subject in a treatise or lecture for the general public. What finer achievement would there have been in my life than to write a work of great benefit to mankind and to bring the nature of things to light for all men? 
Of study and knowledge, Plato states that the study of virtue and vice must be accompanied by an inquiry into what is false and true of existence in general and must be carried on by constant practice and throughout a long period after scrutinizing with benevolent disputation by the use of question and answer without jealousy. At last, a flash of understanding of each blazes up, and in the mind, as it exerts all its powers to the limit of human capacity, it is flooded with light. Plato speaks of his reverence for the subject, and states that there is no danger of anyone forgetting it, since, once the mind grasps it, it is contained in the briefest of statements. Plato was vehemently against writing of such matters. He did not feel that an attempt to tell mankind of these matters would be a good thing, except in a few instances where certain individuals were capable of discovering the truth for themselves with a little guidance. Of the rest, however, it would excite in some an unjustified contempt in a thoroughly offensive fashion and, in others, certain lofty and vain hopes as if they had acquired some awesome lore. On this matter, Plato adds that no serious man will ever think of writing about such serious realities for the general public so as to make them a prey to envy and perplexity. Perhaps this is a remonstrance to myself for doing just that. This chapter was intended to describe a specific occurrence and experience which surpasses metaphor, is based in reality, and is consistently associated with light. It has been identified that this particular experience is a result of the combination of academic study and the dissection of self by meditation and introspection. The individuals cited here were profoundly moved by this resultant experience, the explanation of which in the following chapter will provide a fuller and more accurate perspective. Goethe portrayed the experience in a fictional work, as did Dante, or so the academics would suggest, although I believe that Dante was recounting his own personal experience. Nietzsche lived it but did not rest well after his experience. Jung embraced it, not only by employing mental toughness, but also by being afforded a support structure in that he could see his thoughts and experiences mirrored in cultures and mythologies of antiquity. This support was further strengthened by his professional study of individuals, including Nietzsche, and he found comfort in the fact that many had gone through a similar experience, whether they knew how to cope with it or not. Plato alluded to it, and in so doing also employed light when writing of the subject.